You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Early in the morning in October, hardly anyone is wandering around Walden's downtown. My mom and I show up late at the local cafe, the River Rock, for a meeting of Walden's Beautification Committee. A handful of ladies have shoved a couple tables together and are already deep in discussion over their latest project. They want to hang decorative signs on all the light posts in town. So the sign of the size is 16 by 19. We're guessing, he gave us an original cost that they were $50 each, but we're guessing that they're $60 each. That's Kathy Manville, co-owner of the local bowling alley in town, the 10th Frame. The goal of this committee is to figure out how to spruce up Walden to make it more, quote, visitor-ready. But because of Walden's high altitude and short seasons, it's a challenge. That's what Melanie Leverton tells me. She's co-owner of Timberline, the hardware store in town. We've tried flowers, and the weather is so harsh up here that it's really hard to keep flowers. Plus, it's hard to find volunteers who are willing to care for the flowers, and they have to be watered twice a day up here. And that's a huge job. But recently, Melanie saw some metal signs in Thermopolis, Wyoming's downtown, and it got her thinking that'd be a solution in Walden, too. Sue's Kanak works for the county on tourism stuff and metal works up here. So what we're looking for is to make the town pretty because we knew that they would be changing the light posts. And we just wanted to upgrade them a little bit and give them a little bit of spice of North Park. The signs would be all different images of local wildlife. Sounds like a cool plan, right? But in a small town that's shrinking all the time, making these things a reality isn't easy. First of all, when hunger and poverty are foremost on people's minds, beautification is a low priority, and finding money ain't easy. The group thinks maybe the town council has $1,000 for this project, but that's not enough. So they're planning to apply for a grant from the electric company. I think that we should ask for, I don't know, what do you guys think? We know we definitely need at least 3000 you think? At least. We need to ask more than what we get I'm almost a driver. Okay. What <laughs> about like a five? I do. Yeah. Or maybe even six because you, you never know what you're going to run into. So you want me to ask for... I'd rather for, ask for 
But okay, now this is where things get fun. Um, you want me to ask for six for Mountain Park Electrics, or do you want me to ask for five with the one thousand in town? Listening to them, I realize the hurdles to making this project work are everywhere. I can tell they feel like they've already gotten off on the wrong foot with the town council. We have to go to the town first because we got the cart way ahead of the horse with this project. That when I talk to them, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So they need to be in charge. They need to be on board. They need to agree to this. If it feels like this podcast just turned into C-SPAN, you're not off mark. One thing I've realized is that the machinations of getting things done in a tiny, struggling town really are a miniature version of national politics. The divisions, the back blood, the excruciatingly slow pace of progress. And it got me wondering, what could we learn about democracy from watching it in action on the small scale? I mean, maybe we could figure out a thing or two about revitalizing our institutions by observing how it's functioning or not at the microcosm. And those lessons could be one crucial reason to preserve the rural American way of life. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. I'm a big fan of The Atlantic magazine. My dad and I have been swapping issues for years. One article really struck home, especially the subtitle. To erode small-town culture is to erode the culture of the nation. Damn, I need to talk to this guy, I thought. So I set up an interview with the author, Brian Alexander. We are at risk in this country, I think, of ignoring our small towns to death, and we will be the poorer for it. Brian has written all over the place about rural demise, including a book called Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the All-American Town. That shattered town? It's Lancaster, Ohio, where Brian grew up. It was once famous for its glass factories. His dad worked at Anchor Hawkins. You know, like that little anchor symbol on the bottom of your measuring cup? Yeah, it was a very prosperous uh, little town. Uh, And I would say it was a happy little town. Um, And unfortunately, as, as has happened to hundreds of towns like it all over Um, A variety of of financial shenanigans went on and um, some offshoring of work and and so on. And and the town began a a long decline. It's struggling to come back now, uh, and I hope that it does. Brian says growing up there was great. He was a big fish in a little pond. From a very early age, he got involved in community life. He wasn't much of an athlete, but he had to play sports because otherwise there wouldn't be a team. It forced him out of his comfort zones. I remember the same thing, getting elected as the reporter in 4-H, singing and dancing in the talent show every year. And when I moved to a city in my teens, I wasn't afraid to keep going. Editor of the yearbook, drum major of the marching band. 
This isn't to say that folks don't feel a strong civic duty in cities, too. One reason my family moved away was to give me more opportunities. But once I got to the city, I didn't feel the same social pressure to participate. My brother participated much less in urban schools. Brian says, the American democratic system that we all know and love, it's kept vibrant and relevant when you experience it up close in your daily life. We learn how to be in a community, how to react and act with other people and how to serve other people, serving on a community board, I was a member of the Key Club, which is sort of like junior Kiwanis kind of thing. You also owe things to your community. We, it's easier, I think, to learn that in a small town. I'm not dissing big cities. A lot of great people come out of big cities. That's, that's great. But small towns have a special way of instilling that sort of community and sense of responsibility in people. If you don't have that, those small towns, a lot of that is going to go away. Brian says small towns teach citizens how to serve each other, how to trust each other. And by the way, he says a similar thing does happen in well-run urban neighborhoods that function almost like a small town. But small towns come by this community spirit reflexively because it's a matter of survival, kind of literally, especially in isolated places like Walden. And it doesn't just benefit people inside the town, it benefits the entire nation. I liken small towns to little lagoons that are on the edge of the ocean. And the little lagoon nurtures this life and you're born there and you, you grew up a little bit and then you get to head out into the big ocean. I think if we destroy our small towns, we're gonna to have many fewer people who have that sort of nurturing upbringing that are then able to go out and move to a big city, if they so desire, and contribute. Back at the River Rock Cafe, you can see that these gals have that strong sense of service to their community in spades. While we're meeting, an old-timer walks into the cafe and sits at a table nearby. The beautification committee looks up, thinking, aha, great timing, because Kent Follett is the local metalsmith who's already made three of the 36 decorative signs that the committee wants. They want to pin him down about producing the rest, so they gently lure him into conversation. Because I could help with, with some of the designs too, but there was a question on whether you could do a fish an antelope and a bear, along with the moose, the deer, and the elk. Well, I could come up with quite a few. But the more they talk to him, the more it becomes clear that this is a bigger job than Kent thought he was signing up for. What would be the soonest that you could start production on them next year? Already made three. Right. <laughs> so we only need 33 more. How many? Well, it's that, that turns into a job. There's 36 more. Don't call it that. <laughs> it's community engagement. 36. See, that's, if I do one a day, that's. 
That's a month. That's a job. That's a month. <laughs> yeah, but you, you aren't going to work for six months, so. <laughs> So the ladies massage the situation, keeping a sense of humor about it all. I'm thinking, okay, here's democracy down and dirty. Patty Schuler tells Kent he can take all year to complete them if he wants. Just do them as you can. You want to think about this and get <laughs> a year out is a long time. Something like that. No, nothing ever happens that we don't know about, so we're fine. We're good. <laughs> you know, you might be able to buy these cheaper. I can make it. You look around. Mm -hmm. Do you want us to look around? If you want, yeah, that'd be, that'd be all right. Okay. we have a cousin that does will do it. Mm -hmm. but, you know. Yeah. Well, the school are going to do that. Oh, and the it's school? Just somebody are. said the school is too busy. When these gals arrived this morning, their project at least had an artist. Now Kent is bowing out. One step forward, two steps back. It's enough to discourage these ladies from sticking it out. Getting new energy to keep these projects moving forward to completion is a huge obstacle I'm seeing. All of these gals wear several hats in the community. It wears you out just watching them. My mother died. She asked me to take care of two things, my father and her community. My father was a quadriplegic. He was less hard to take care of. <laughs> but taking care of Walden is what Suze does best. So she seems like a good person to ask about how viable small-town politics really are these days. Her job title is a mouthful, so I'll let her do it. My actual job is I'm the Jackson County Lodging Tax Panel marketing and sales specialist, which means that I'm in charge of the tourists. Suze is from one of the oldest families in the park, the Follets, related to Kent, in fact. In other words, she's related to almost everyone in this town. But still, that wasn't enough to keep her from leaving. I left as soon as I got out of high school, honey. I went to college, and I made my first year through everything was good and dandy and fine, and then my sister died, and then I was in a head-on collision, and then I went back to school but they didn't treat brain injuries back then. So I literally went back to school, and it took me 10 years to get my degree, but I stuck it out. And got a job working as the traffic manager for a Wyoming TV station, a position that she kept for 25 years. Then one of her old classmates got a hold of her and said, hey, we really need help with the senior center in Walden. So Suze moved home, and now it's all that she can think about. Because the amount of seniors up here that are destitute just breaks my heart. You know, I want to help with housing, and I have people that need help with housing, but I can't go into a house and fix their water system without their electrical system coming into question, and then condemning the house, and then they have nowhere to live. I'm tired of sending people out to die. And that's all, you know, it seems that we do, and it just, it hurts. There's no senior living in North Park. So usually what happens is when the elderly can't take care of themselves anymore. They go to Fort Collins, they go to Laramie, they go to Steamboat. They get sent out of the valley and we never see them again. And honestly, they don't last very long. 
They want to stay here to die and I wish we could give them that affordability. And honestly, it's a little self-serving because I'm going to be in that position. I don't have the family. I need a place and I don't want to leave. But I'm not the only one because we all want to stay here. It's, I don't know what it is about North Park, but we do, you know, that's why we have an aging community. Suze tells me that on the wall over her computer, she has a vision board where she's been assembling clippings and photos of her dream for North Park seniors. I wanted to have condos with little garages attached so our ranchers, as they come in off the ranches, the men need something to, they need to have their spot and I always take her a man, away. A man cave. They need a, a man, man cave. cave. They need a man <laughs> cave. So you'd have like eight duplexes. And then off of the duplexes, once they get to a spot where they need assistant, where they need someone to fix their mails and stuff, then you have that um, more of a living community. And from that living center, I really do want them to go into an aftercare where we actually had a place where they could stay here and die. So Suze started trying to figure out how to make her dream a reality. A few years back, she was at a state conference and leveraged a seat next to an organization called Community Heart and Soul, hoping they would have funding for her ideas. Well, I sat down at their table and they said, well, we don't have any money. I was like, why did I sit down? And you can't move once you sit down. So I listened and our, another county was talking about how they had paid their seniors to gather stories. And I thought, if I can find money for my seniors, that would be wonderful, you know. And then they told me how sometimes having a heart and soul done is better than even a financial study. Because if the community is involved, then the places that give you grants and funding, such as our Department of Local Affairs, look at that really highly. The more Suze listened to what this organization had to say, the more excited she got. Their mission is to empower small towns to save themselves by teaching them how to engage the community so that they can build the future of their dreams. Suze says Heart and Soul works by gathering together all the dreams of everyone in the community, being sure not to leave out the quieter voices, and figuring out how to make those dreams come true. When people start thinking their voice is heard and there's action plans from what they've said, then they get involved. And they show that a lot of people then start getting involved in the um, elections. They start getting involved in the school system. They start getting involved in how can we help you. This all sounded amazing to Suze. Maybe her vision for helping North Park elders could actually happen. Then she found out that getting into this awesome program was very competitive. But Suze, she's not one to take no for an answer. I was talking to one of the assistants, and the assistant went on maternity leave, and she bumped me up to her boss, and her boss thought we'd already been okayed. So we literally never went through the process. We slipped in. Wow. Yeah, this was just, and like I said, we don't bring it up because it's really hard to become a heart and soul community because of all the requirements. And she, yeah, so we, we slipped in and it was just through, I always call it the grace, you know, because it was grace. But I couldn't help having a niggling doubt. Was this program really everything Suze cracked it up to be? Had it actually worked in other places? I decided to find out. That's coming up when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. I call the Community Heart and Soul Organization and talk to Jane Lafleur, their national PR person. Jane's from up in Maine, where a lot of small towns have been losing factories to globalization. She says one example of where she's seen this model work is in Bucksport, Maine. This is a town that had a paper mill in the middle of downtown or just outside of downtown. And it closed a couple years ago and they lost 40% of their tax base. And they lost, I think it was 500 jobs. They took on heart and soul because they said, we're not gonna feel bad about ourselves. We wanna have a positive plan for the future because that paper mill was not gonna come back. They came up with a set of nine heart and soul statements about what matters most to the community. They came up with an action plan that the community members are working on, and this is what's being carried into the future. So there's, I think it was 82 ideas for action. Um, At first I said, boy, you know, focus on the top 10. And they said, no, these ideas came from the community. We want to take on all of them. And some of them are short term and we can do them in a couple of months and others are long term. They may take years, but we know that these things came from the community. But I still didn't quite understand how it worked. I asked Jane to break it down for me. There's steps, what we call getting started steps. So there are discussions you have in your community about who lives, works, and plays in this community and really finding out, you know, what the community is about and who are the organizations and who are the formal and informal groups. This step is super important, Jane says, because in a lot of towns, some groups of people don't feel invited to get involved in stuff. It's about finding missing voices, people that haven't normally been involved. Many communities start heart and soul because in my community in particular, I'm in Maine and a lot of our communities in Maine have the same old people routinely making decisions and being involved. And there's burnout. I mean, they want new younger people to step up and get engaged and they want the next generation to care about government and care about the community and Harried parents, minority groups, artists, veterans, homebound seniors, all those voices that get lost in the shuffle. It made me think of the Beautification Committee, whether it might be hitting roadblocks because it's almost entirely older white women attending. To get more diversity showing up for these things, the Heart and Soul Coach starts by inviting other people's opinions. What do they love about their town? What would they change if they could? That last question, though, sometimes people get resistant at this phase, especially in a libertarian-leaning place like North Park. But Jane says it's a fact of life. Change is inevitable. People often say, you know, I wish my community was like it used to be. And things disappear. But sometimes we find that it might be the quality of that place. Like one of the things I've seen a lot in small towns is a gathering space is lost. And people really are sad about that. 
maybe they can never bring that specific gathering place back, but they can find another gathering place that solves the same or addresses the same need in the community. Yeah, like Walden's Elkhorn Bar and Cafe, where the dance hall once filled with people on New Year's Eve, where the old timers used to meet every morning, where we all played pool late into the night. There's a gaping hole there. Jane says letting people tell the stories of those places is a big old healing step in the process for towns. And those stories of our towns, they're welling up inside of us like seeds in need of a place to grow. I saw the truth in that at the beautification meeting. They started talking about how to celebrate an upcoming anniversary, 30 years since the town delivered a Christmas tree to Washington, D.C. Patty Schuler and Sandy Flinio remember it vividly. It was a big deal because so many people were going back to Washington, D.C. with it. I mean, it was like a... Mm-hmm. Right, the 4-H club went, people from the bank went, the postal service, it was was a big deal. It was more than one airplane actually that went, and and they divided Walden up because they knew if the plane went down, Walden would be out with that. (laughs) And no kidding, they did. They didn't didn't put everybody on the plane. People went down. Like for the... Those kids that 30 years ago, it'd be fun to invite them back. That's what I'm saying. And it's a good time. You know, I can't even tell you who they were. Walden doesn't have its heart and soul administrator yet, but Suze steps right in at that moment, figuring out how to turn this cherished story into community action. The committee decides to invite the town to celebrate the anniversary. And that's how this program would work, turning town patriotism into innovation. But Jane admits, just like in national politics, people don't always agree on the way forward. What we found is that by sitting down with somebody and asking them not political questions, not negative questions, but questions about what do you love about this community? What brought you here? What keeps you here? What would make it a better place? What would you miss if you moved away? And when you see other people's stories and you realize that you have much more in common than you thought, the divisiveness moves away. You realize that there are some things that you agree on, and usually it's this love of this community. It makes sense to me, galvanizing the identity of a community, holding a mirror up so the community can see how beautiful it is. But until now, there hasn't been a clear channel for that here. Suze says Walden is still in the gathering stage, but soon it will be time to decide what projects to act on together. Maybe the senior living project. Maybe just a litter cleanup day. Whatever they choose. Do it as a united front. As a community, we're never going to be that rich. But as a community, we are that rich in heart. So if we can get together the heart and soul and say, you know, we can do this, we can do this. Once we make up our mind... But getting people to the table because they all think that they, their ideas are so different. They aren't. We all want safe schools. We all want safe streets. We all want, you know, the security. And once we start talking to each other about what we have in common, the county people and the town people, then things can start happening. But a lot of people told me the whole process falls apart when government starts elbowing in and bossing small towns around. Here's Jane again. 
we're going to do them as a community. And that doesn't mean government. It means community members doing these things, community organizations coming together. Danny Manville, the county commissioner, says change sticks better when it's community-driven, not government-driven. And Mayor Jim Destin says even small-town governments can make a big mess of things. Some people say we should have tax incentives for private industry, and I'm absolutely against that. Uh, if, a, if a company can't make it without tax incentives, it probably shouldn't be in business. Uh, there's a town in eastern Colorado that's offering free land to any, any business that will move there. It's, it's kind of dangerous because you become dependent on that, uh, on that tax base, on that employment base. But all this anti-government rhetoric worries me. The problems are humongous in Walden. Is it really realistic to think a town can just circle the wagons and solve all their problems in isolation? Brian Alexander, the author I talked to, he's like me. Not so sure that small towns can dig themselves out of their slide into decline alone. I think that government at all levels does have a role to play, but it's got to be a cooperative role that is tailored to the community. For instance, Brian says... Only the government can help protect towns from predatory corporations growing fat on the debt and gutting of rural economies. But right now, government isn't doing much of that. Brian says small towns have been forgotten, and that's led to widespread neglect and denigration of rural people. One thing that, I, that upsets me is when I hear or read what I call the, the smarty pants set who want to uh, pigeonhole small towns and rural places as being this monolithic, white, throwback, retrograde place um, without having actually spent any time in them. There's still an awful lot of people that don't love Donald Trump in those places. They may be a little quieter about it, but they're there. There are artists and musicians and gay people and uh, transgender people in rural places, just like there are everywhere else. But it's also fair to say that lots of these groups suffer in struggling small towns and end up leaving, further drying up the lagoon. In Walden, a lesbian couple I knew who served the community in lots of amazing ways finally left because they didn't feel welcome. And that's a big reason that Community Heart and Soul insists first thing on giving these underrepresented groups a place at the table. So yes, some rural stereotypes are real. But Brian says the constant stereotyping has translated into something that only makes things worse. Economic disrespect. companies like his father's glass factory that racked up huge debt and shoveled big dividends into the pockets of CEOs, all the while cutting employee wages or shutting down factories altogether. And that kind of disrespect has damaged the very spirit of America. The workers don't trust the owners of the factory anymore. People don't trust the owners of the factory. People began to think that their foundations upon which their community was built was really made out of sand. People begin to feel like they have no real future. And so younger people, and and I noticed it especially in younger people, 
they don't really believe in anything because why should they? Why should they believe that what somebody tells them is the truth or that somebody's going to look out for them or that if they work hard and and do what we usually say is the right thing to do that good things are going to happen in their lives why should they believe that when they have watched their parents obey the rules and get screwed in the end which is exactly what happened so yeah the impulse of my town to circle up the wagons flip the bird at the outside world it comes from a feeling of abandonment and then to rub salt into the wound, small towns are blamed for their own ghost towning. Nothing annoys me more when some fancy thinker says, well, these small towns have outlived their usefulness. They deserve to die. You know, you could say, you know, a gold rush town, for example, when the mine is played out, well, the town disappears. This is not like that. These towns have long histories. They have multi-generational families. These towns are the American identity. Even if you live in a big city, go digging in your ancestry, and you're likely to trace it back to a little town somewhere. Saying these towns deserve to die is self-destructive. Maybe it sounds quaint, but the fate of Walden's downtown wildlife signs project? It matters. Because if a little town can't organize itself to make itself visitor-ready, then can it organize itself to conduct a free and fair election? Can it make sure it isn't vulnerable to attack from political action groups? Can it promise to protect candidates who express unpopular opinions? This danger, it's real, and it's on our doorstep. And I can see the strain happening in real time on institutions in Walden. A few months after I attended the Beautification Committee, I reached out to SUS to see how the Metal Wildlife Science Project is coming along. They haven't applied for the grant yet and still haven't found a metal artist, but they're hoping high schoolers might produce them by using some equipment from a neighboring town's high school. And then what they plan on doing, and we're, we have to do this quickly because school's running out, is they're going to go over to Sirocco, who has the equipment. And these kids are actually going to learn how to do this metal cutting off of a machine, which will be wonderful. I like hands-on education. Every, every time I think about doing something, I say, and how can we bring our students in? But Suze also has some bad news to share. The town council recently dismissed her entire board, the Jackson County Lodging Tax Panel, and appointed a whole new one. Now, her new bosses have cut her pay. I do know they kind of overspent their budget. I um, actually took a cut in my pay trying to make the budget work, but they didn't quite understand business to governmental budgets. She's been making $30,000 a year, barely a living wage to start with. Now she's only making $10,000. So Suze is currently looking for a new job. Dreading her answer, I ask her, is she looking outside North Park? Without Suze, it's hard to imagine the Community Heart and Soul Project succeeding. But she says, no way. She's too stubborn for that. 
Why is it important to be here? Because in my kitchen, in my bathroom, my drawers are made out of um, dynamite boxes that my grandfather put in there. I live in the house that my grandfather built. So, you know, there's that roots. And in my root world, my roots run deep. Suze plans to live out her days in North Park. To get by, she plans to write a grant to pay her to realize her senior center dream. Plus, she has to stay here to see the Heart and Soul Project through, too. She doesn't blame the community's current leaders. She says the real problem is a lack of participation by everybody else. This is what I wish, and this is one of those things that Heart and Soul is supposed to help with, is that more people would get involved in the politics, that we had more people running for the positions. I mean, honestly, the two commissioners we got this year, no one ran against them. Well, if there's no competition and no one from the other side saying, you know, pointing out what can be changed, that's, again, when you get the blind spots. Blind spots that the community just never gets around to facing. And then those blind spots turn to crazy talk about how we don't want people moving here anyway. We like it just the way it is. I ask Suze about this resistance to change. I have heard that my whole life. I kid you not. I have heard that since I was a little kid. Me too. And I'm saying, fine, Dandy, are we going to let our community die without having new people come in and new ideas and new breath? I'm sorry. A baby is the best thing for a family. It gives you purpose. It gives you a reason to go on to the next generation. And in our community, we don't get so many babies, so maybe we need more people moving in that have other ideas. And the thought to not grow, um, you either growing or dying. What do you want to do? Suze is an optimist. She's still a believer that politics are functioning in Walden. And if small towns are microcosms of what's happening nationally, then that's good news for us all. But me, looking in from the outside, I'm nervous. If small towns are lagoons feeding the ocean of American democracy, those lagoons are in dire need of nourishment. Right now, small towns are cannibalizing the vitality of people like Suze and Kathy, Patty and Sandy and Melanie. It hurts to see them spread so thin and their dreams for their hometown just right there, out of reach. Just one more episode of our ghost towning series to go. We'll find out whether my mom and dad are going to move away from Walden after all, further contributing to the town's demise. Well, you see what he's like. You know, I mean, your your dad doesn't adjust to change that well. I mean, he just doesn't. But to me, I need the change, you know. Because I didn't adjust, apparently, to that change where, where I wasn't working and I was just hit at home. And, and Walden you didn't had, retire well. No, I didn't retire well. And Walden doesn't have that much to offer anymore. The final chapter, next time on The Modern West. For all you folks living in struggling towns around the West, how resilient are the political institutions in your community? Share your insights with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Modern West Pod.
A little Modern West news. Our executive producer, Micah Schweitzer, is off on his own adventure and will be leaving us. Happy trails, Micah, and thanks for all that you have taught us. I'm Melody Edwards. Aaron Jones is our story editor. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.